You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles and uh, welcome to the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. I'm sure by now, some of you have noticed a change in the RSS feed. It has been changed from the Nine Finger Chronicles to the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. That has been the plan all along, and uh, you don't have to do anything. Uh, if you've already subscribed to this podcast, the only thing you need to do is just continue to listen to all the kick-ass podcasts that are coming down the lane, the DIY Sportsman's Podcast, the Lane and Legacy Podcast, the Transition Wild Podcast, and yours truly, the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast. Uh, we're going to be coming at you every week, just like normal. Uh, nothing's changed, so spread the word about the Sportsman's Nation, and uh, yeah, dude, I'm excited. I'm, I'm not only excited for the launch of the website, but I am excited for November. It is November 1st, and um, dude, I start my rutcation, my two-week rutcation in, oh man, like two days, three days. My first night out will be November 3rd, Friday, November 3rd, and then for the next, what, 14 days, I'll be grinding my ass off to try to get on something, you know, some something respectable, something mature, uh, and it's that time of year where... Dude, we love it. We hate it, but it's the hate that drives us. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to explain, but you think about it all year round and then it's time to hunt and you're like, man, what stand should I sit in? You know, you've had all year to determine where you want to go, but that's the best part about it. It's the chase. It's the strategy. It's the, it's the chess game that we play with these animals that has me consumed. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I know a lot of big bucks have already hit the ground. The temperature is changing. The, the wind is changing, you know, to be more northerly, and especially where I hunt. And uh, this weekend when I was out, I witnessed some young deer chasing does and chasing them pretty heavy. Um, I saw, I passed a three-year-old 
that was uh, looking head on. He looked like a stud, but when he turned broadside and then I realized that his body was small, um, he was not a shooter for me. And then on Sunday night, I think I saw my first shooter of the year. However, he was chasing a doe the opposite direction from me. And, uh, I guess until we meet again, but uh, I got some trail cameras that are showing good movement. However, that movement is still nocturnal, but in the next handful of days, man, I think that's all going to change, and it's just a matter of being in the right spot at the right time, and, you know, sometimes being in that right spot at the right time takes a couple days, and some take sometimes it doesn't happen for you. Uh, the during the season and uh dude i've eaten my tag with the rest of them uh and i've also been able to be successful with the rest of them as well so i'm really looking forward to just honestly going through the process spending as much time in the tree as um i can possibly get you know without ignoring the family too much and uh just just doing what i love and uh, i think that's what it's all about now Today, man, we have another kick-ass podcast. We're going to be talking with C.J. Davis of Wasp Archery Montana Decoys uh, about his kind of journey through life in the hunting industry, how he was a writer, um, how he got into you know the sales side of thing. We're also going to talk about hunting you know in his youth, going from a compound bow to a trad bow. He's a huge fan of trad, and uh, we just kind of BS for roughly an hour about all things deer hunting, all things bow hunting, and uh, he is a huge lover of elk hunting as well. We talk about that, uh, and uh, just a, an, another guy that uh, uh, I felt had a story that needed to be told on this podcast so uh here's to cj and uh before we get started here speaking of elk hunting um if you guys ever get the opportunity to go out west and experience a western hunt i strongly recommend it i've only been on two western hunts and uh it is definitely in the books to go again in the upcoming years um and you know Outfitters have their place, right? So if you're looking to potentially go out west, maybe harvest an antelope, a mule deer, an elk, and uh, think an outfitter is the right fit for you, then you guys need to go check out Bighorn Outfitters um, with my buddy Dustin DeCrew. Um, Go to bighornoutfitters.com, and I tell you what, uh, they offer a variety of hunts for a variety of different uh, species, very affordable, and I tell you what, I know uh, Dustin DeCrew on a personal level, and he's the kind of guy that when he takes his clients out on a hunt, it's like he's hunting for himself. So he wants you guys to be successful just as much as, you know, he wants himself to be successful. And I think that's what using an outfitter is, is kind of all about. Um, so, you know, go to uh, bighornoutfitters.com and uh, take a look at all the options that they offer and uh, give them a call and uh, sign up for a uh, hunt in 2018, 19, 20, whenever they have uh, stuff available or w- whenever it fits your schedule. All right. Today, we have a good old fashioned BS session with my man, CJ Davis. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. CJ Davis. How are you doing today, CJ? I'm doing great, Dan. How about you? 
Oh, I'm uh, I got a honeydew list. Uh, my honeydew list is getting smaller. I have to fix one toilet and I have to fix a light in the house before I've been given permission to uh, partake in the rut. But as soon as that, <laughs> as soon as that's done, then I'm, I'm golden. <laughs> I'm a, I'm in a little bit different boat, man. Uh, my wife started a new job with an organization called hope for the warriors. Yeah. Um, which benefits nine uh, 11, the current vets, uh, yeah. you know, support programs and takes them on some hunts and does a lot of cool outdoor stuff. So, she has been traveling a lot. So when she gets home, I think she feels guilty and uh, I'll get to hunt a whole lot here, hopefully coming up soon. Oh, nice. So she, uh, so by basically process of elimination, you've been, she's traveling and you're hunting. That's kind of how I see it. Now, you know, she may change the, the tune a little bit when she comes back. That's kind of how I see it. She travels a lot. Then when she gets back and can do the kid to school thing, I get to go hunt so. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we hope. Hope, hopefully she comes back pretty soon then, right? No doubt. All right. So, you know, I think today we'll just make this a BS session. Um, I wanted to get you on the phone, talk a little bit about you know where you hunt, how you hunt, and all that good stuff. But before we – you've been on the podcast before. Uh, Wasp right. is a partner of this podcast. You kind of work with Wasp. So give the details. What do you do for a living? So I'm uh, part of the, I guess I'd say the group that uh, works on both uh, Montana Decoy and Wasp Archery, as well as Track Optics. Now, my day-to-day responsibilities lean much heavier uh, on the Montana Decoy side. And uh, if you had one of my business cards, it would say president for whatever that's worth. But we all kind of pitch in. It's a small group. Um, you know, we share a warehouse, all that sort of stuff. So it, it's a, it's a neat thing to be a part of. Cause when I get so frustrated with Montana or what's going on, I can easily find, you know, something to do for wasp or, you know, to kind of break up my day. So it's really cool to do that. And, uh, I'm kind of the resident trad shooter. I'm really the only one that's in the stick bows. So from a wasp perspective, I'm like the go-to guy for that, um, sharpshooter traditional head we we released a couple years ago so that's really cool i get to play around with that and make suggestions and occasionally they listen to them and uh, it's just a neat process to be a part of to me right right now before this group came to be you know with montana decoy and uh, track optics and wasp you were the quote-unquote inventor or you actually started montana decoy right no, no, that's, uh, that's, that's not the case. I, uh, okay. I'm, I was friends with the original inventor, a guy named oh, Jerry McPherson. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And he's, he's still out in Montana and, uh, he's a lot smarter than I gave him credit for because now he gets to do all the fun stuff, the testing and the hunting. <laughs> and I get to do all of the, you know, making sure invoices get paid kind of stuff. So he, he definitely pulled one over on me, but Jerry and I used to work together <laughs> when I was in an agency and our agency specialized in outdoor products and Montana decoy was a client of ours. And I I met him through that and got to know him. So, okay. Real good relationship. Perfect. Perfect. So where do you call home right now? So I'm born and raised in South Carolina. And then I made a little loop through the South. I moved to, uh, I started out at the Turkey Federation as a glorified copywriter. And then I, somehow landed a job doing PR for Mossy Oak, which was tremendously cool. Uh, and then I left that and worked at QDMA for a little bit. And then I went to work for that agency I mentioned earlier, and we handled a lot of different clients in the outdoor industry. So I've kind of made a loop from 
South Carolina to Mississippi to Alabama to Georgia, and now I'm back in South Carolina, which is weird as all get out to be, you know, associated with a company named Montana Decoy and working from about <laughs> as far away from it as you can get. So. So, but we've got Jerry in Montana, so we have boots on the ground there. There you go. So you've always been kind of uh, in the hunting industry, it sounds like. you've Is that something that you've planned? You said, hey, I want to work in the hunting in- industry some way, shape, or form, or is that just kind of where your path led? It's kind of a little bit of both, because when I was in college, I had a uh, friend that I'd started hunting with, it was a fisheries biologist, and he was always complaining that our local paper didn't have an outdoor section. So I went and visited with the newspaper, and uh, they let me start writing an outdoor column. And in that whole time of when I was in college, I continued doing that. And then graduating from college, uh, I started working for uh, a company that made VHS videotape, which has long since gone the way of the dinosaurs, and worked swing shifts and did that for probably a year and a half and then I moved over to the water department because my dad was a plumber and so that was kind of a natural transition to me still writing that outdoor column and uh, I was kind of like a I tested water on Friday so I was that guy that you ride down the road and you see a truck parked and a fire hydrant blowing up into the woods and he's sitting there reading a magazine that was me so it was a super great job I you know worked with a bunch of great people and all that but I was still writing that column and I thought I wanted to be an outdoor writer and I applied for an NWTF job. I didn't know what job I applied for. It was a regional director, and I didn't really know what that was. I just sent in a resume and some writing samples. That's how out of the loop I was. And uh, whoever got my resume at the RD department, which they're the guys that handle the banquets, they sent it over to the communications department, and they called me up. And uh, probably one of the few smart things I've ever done in my life, when they called me and kind of did a phone interview, they asked me to just send some writing samples, and once they reviewed them, you know, we'd schedule an interview and I said, sure. Great. Hung up. And I got to thinking about it. Man, if they just look at my writing, all I've ever done is newspaper stuff. And I know I'm not that great. They're going to really think I'm not that great. I need to get down there and get in front of these people and sell myself. That's my only option. So I called them back and said, I tell you what, you tell me when it's good for you and I'll bring those samples down. I really want this. I want to be a part of the organization and, you know, I'll make myself available for a whole day and just hang out in the parking lot until you can talk to me. I don't care. Yeah, And I don't know if that impressed them or they were just that desperate, but it led to me getting the job. And that's kind of what got me in the outdoor industry. And, you know, my mom to this day is just amazed at what I do the way I got there, because I literally failed my algebra test in 12th grade because I was <laughs> absent. I passed it on grade average, but I failed it for absences because I would wait on them to leave to go to work and then I'd go turkey hunting and then I'd come in, you know, second or third period, depending on how my morning went and that didn't float (laughs) real well. So now it's a lot of fun for me to go back and say, see, you didn't like it, but I was doing job research. She still doesn't believe it though. Yeah. Mom, it doesn't matter where you go in life. The mom always seems to, you know, I guess she catches you when you need to be caught, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and their BS filter is absolutely the oh, best in the yeah. world, too, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no, for me, for me, when I was younger, it was like, uh, no, I've been home for, I've been just in the backyard hanging out for yeah. for two hours. So she, uh, <laughs> she called BS on that quite a bit. Why do you have blood on your pants, Liz? Why are you wearing camera? <laughs> 
My, well, your truck wasn't then, muddy when you went to school this morning. Why is it now? That's right. Well, for me, it wasn't. It was other probably worse things. Like what? Why do you? You haven't been drinking? No, that's mouthwash. <laughs> so, so that's where I, I I came from. But anyway, um, so you've you've been in the industry in some way, shape, or form for quite a quite a while. The first thing that pops into my head. So, so you started right out of right out of college. Well, it was probably four years at four five years out of college. Okay, so somewhere around twenty five, twenty six years old. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then so and I hate to ask, but how old are you now? I'm forty five now. Okay, forty five years old. So you've so somewhere around just shy of twenty years or twenty years about you've been in the in the hunting industry. How has the hunting industry as a whole changed from the time that you started? To, to today you know i think the biggest change for me looking back and it's hard to say because my role changed so much at different jobs you know I, I wasn't involved in the sales side of things as much back then as i am now i was more marketing and pr right uh, and i think you know the core of that is still the same you're basically trying to reach people with your message and and they and you hope that they like your products enough to buy it but definitely um social media and really the rise of internet sales have been the things that, that I see that have just tremendously changed it. And, and, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting old enough now to where I look back at certain things and I kind of miss it. And that's why I think uh, shooting a stick bow really appeals to me. Cause I just remember standing in my backyard, shooting a great big block of styrofoam that I found floating on the lake and lugged home. Uh, and, you know, you'd have to literally stand on it to pull the broadhead or an arrow out of it. Styrofoam <laughs> is not the best target in the world. But I just remember shooting that with – and I had one of those Oneida Screaming Eagles. I had a PSE Stratoflight Express. You know, they're like 48 inches long, and I'm shooting it with fingers and watching that arrow sail in there. Now you got your modern compound. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But I don't see the arrow anymore, and I miss seeing the arch of the arrow, if you will. So those kind of changes – to me personally happened, but from a business standpoint, it's just, I think our industry has gone through cycles. I feel like we're in one now where, you know, depending on how many dealers you talk to or what area of the country, there's a lot of independent shops, bow shops that are, you know, having tough years. They're having to really, really buckle down and, and get some sales to, you know, pay the bills and things like that. It's just been kind of like a, a little bit of a bubble burst. And I'm sure there's new companies and old out there that are doing great, but overall, it's kind of a, a little bit of a down sales year for us. And that's always, always frustrating because you have to be careful that you don't, you know, make bad decisions when things like that are going on. And I feel for a lot of those small mom and pop pro shops, because I'm sure you've probably got one you go to now and you probably went to some as you were growing up and that environment's just really cool, but you know, internet sales and it's so easy to price shop and, you know, it's benefited the consumer those changes have, I feel like in a lot of good ways, but it maybe hasn't benefited those independent dealers in the same way, especially to, you know, the ones that aren't as able or willing to adapt to new changes in technology and the way people shop. And it's a, it's an ever moving target. Right. So do you, do you believe, I mean, obviously you kind of just answered that, uh, that sales in general could be down because of the, you know, the, the, uh, or for the for the dealer could be down because of internet, but do you think it also has something to do with like the hunters as a whole 
you know, as time goes on, there's, there tends to be a trend of less and less hunters. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're probably right on both counts. I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one thing out there that we can go and put our finger on and say, this has caused this year to be tough for some people. I think, you know, a dealer in Iowa may be suffering because uh, his customer base has shifted to internet sales. And, you know, a, a dealer in South Carolina may be faced with more competition than they've ever had locally. And there's just always a lot of yeah. changing things going on in that environment. It's really tough to nail it down to one thing. But, you know, I think people are just much more aware in a good way of products and pricing. And, you know, you just do a simple Google search and, and instantly you see the cost of something in six or eight different places. And I could drive down to my local shop and buy it, or maybe I buy it through Amazon and it's prime and it's here in two days. And, you know, that cost me X amount less. And yeah. I think the shops that have done well have really, <clears throat> excuse me, have really put the emphasis on customer service and, you know, making the customer feel appreciated when they walk in. And, you know, I still, travel a good bit going to these shops and it amazes me how many times you go into one and you know you always get a different vibe when you're there to sell them something but when they don't know you're there to sell them something yet and you're first just talking to them you know the customer service level is vastly different from shop to shop yeah yeah and I, if i were in their shoes i would want to make sure every customer that came in there had as good of an experience but you can apply that same logic to your website your facebook page or whatever else you want to put it to it's all about the customer experience giving them the information to make a decision if your product is what they need or what works for them with the application they're trying it out for. And the more you can communicate with them, I think the better off you do, rather that's because we're still telling stories. I mean, you know, I'm old enough that all my stories came from print media and you're a good bit younger than I am. So you're probably, you know, more used to reading it online and, you know, but we're still telling stories. We may tell it in shorter bits and pieces online, but, you're still talking about the deer you shot and the broadhead you used to do it and the grunt call you blew to call him over. You know, it's the same thing. It's just the method of delivery a little bit has changed. You've got to adapt to that stuff. Right. Absolutely. So kind of shifting gears here and coming, going back to your youth, uh, you grew up in South Carolina, right? Correct. Okay. So, Growing up in South Carolina, what was 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 deer hunting uh, a big part of your family? I mean, was was your dad into it? Were your uncles into it? So forth and so on. No, not really. I uh, I'm a I'm a kid that got sucked into it from outdoor life. So okay, uh, my dad was a hunter, but he was a quail hunter. And about the time that I was born, and, and you know, he was. Uh, the quail population, and I'm, I'm reiterating what he's or regurgitating what he said, you know, the quail population was down and you could walk for a whole day and never find a covey. And, you know, the cycle of the quail population in South Carolina really dropped. But about that same time, the deer population started growing. So I just got enamored with it. And I was fortunate to live on a cattle farm. And, uh, you know, my dad was a plumber full time, but he had cows on, that was what we did on the weekend and stuff. And, you know, when you're a 12 year old kid, and you ask your neighbor if you can hunt on their property, you generally get a yes. Um, yeah. So I had all this ground to roam on and just, you know, got enamored with deer and then turkeys. And our people used to look at the South as you come down, maybe not for big deer, you come down to see a lot of deer. And I think that has evolved now to where our deer population probably peaked in the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. And 
and I think our turkey populations probably are about in that same ballpark somewhere. And, you know, I go out now and I see more deer now than I did two to three years ago. And you could argue I'm a better hunter now. Maybe I was a terrible hunter back then. I don't know. But it's definitely gone through some sort of transition. It's it's not as you don't go out and see 10 or 15 deer every time you sit, unless you're on some really special, well-managed place that I don't have access to. So those changes have really kind of impacted it to me as well. It seems like you have to hunt a little harder to, to find deer, uh, you know, that you want to target, or, you know, even if you're just hunting for the freezer, it's just a little bit different now than it was for me growing up. Right. So growing up, you know, when you were, your your dad maybe wasn't there to, or wasn't a hunter himself. Did you have anybody along the way, like guide you or help you out as a young kid? Or was it one of these things where you just kind of learned everything as you went? I learned a lot as I went, which is also a nice way of saying I learned the hard way by screwing up. Right. Um, but I, there was a neighbor when I kind of got into bow hunting, um, that lived in, it was just he and his wife, they didn't have any kids and they were really big archers. So they shot tournaments and they hunted and all that. And he kind of, kind of took me under his wing a little bit and directed me in the right direction and, and, um, you know, would shoot with me and kind of give me some tips and stuff like that. So I kind of had that person to get me going. And then, you know, my buddies that were getting into it and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, to this day, I just love to read. So I would read everything I could find and try to find information that applied to me that I could use. So I did have some mentors and my parents were very supportive of it, but I don't remember, you know, my dad getting me up on Saturday morning and taking me out and sitting in a stand with me. That kind of stuff didn't happen. He just was, he was just working too hard, you know, right. doing his plumbing job and then messing with the cows on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. So I had a great childhood. I had a lot of freedom to go and play in the woods and, you know, screw up a lot of deer opportunities and do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of it was just uh, personal digging and striving outside of that, really that one mentor until I got a little bit older and started hanging around some more people that had done more stuff. So, Gotcha. So as a kid, you know, you, you learned a lot. Um, maybe let's say let's get into high school then if, if uh, you can remember that. Talk about Dude, I'm not that old. Oh. <laughs> wow. I I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. If but, I can uh, remember that. I'll try you... real hard. <laughs> but but in high school, uh like for me, hunting kind of took a back seat. I you know, I, I was in sports and I was in other activities and then there was girls and, and whatnot. Did you did did hunting ever take a back seat uh, as you went through maybe like high school or college or or i guess the better question is do you can you remember a point in your life where you're like i am hooked on this and i'm going to do it every year yeah that started for me um probably about the time you know ninth or 10th grade Okay. And it was to the detriment of my grades. It was to the detriment of a couple of part-time jobs. It was to the detriment of the first wife I had. And I would say that all I've ever wanted to do is hunt. I never, you asked me earlier if that was always a goal to work in the industry. I can't say it was ever a goal to work in the industry. It's just always been a goal to hunt. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I look back and, you know, we all look back and realize the mistakes we made. And there's a lot of things I wish I I wish I had not gone hunting sometimes and done other stuff, but that was just, you know, it's, 
I don't know. I guess you can get addicted to a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And that, that was a, that was something I was going to do was hunt no matter what I had to do to figure out a way to make it happen. And it's probably here since I had a child really, uh, and met my wife, Karen, now that things have really kind of changed for me to where I have different priorities, but it's just been something I've always wanted to do. And, you know, working at Mossy Oak, my job was to take people hunting. A big part of it was we did rider hunts. It took the media out to show them the patterns and the products that our partners made in our patterns. And, you know, we had this huge chunk of land we did it all on and, you know, it was just awesome. So I literally hunted every chance I could get. I might have to work during the week to take somebody else out and put them in stands, but on the weekend I'm still doing it too. So it's just always been a huge addiction for me. Right particularly so, bow hunting yeah yeah and that was going to kind of get to my uh go down that next line of questionings is because you like and you mentioned it a little bit earlier but you're a trad guy right you love to shoot trad uh are, yeah. are you solely a trad guy now do you do you shoot a compound at all i don't currently have a compound um i have a little crossbow that i shoot some that, that i bought uh for my son um just to play around with in the yard so i'm hoping he might want to take it hunting and looking back at maybe my mistakes in life i'm not pushing him to go he has to come and say he wants to go and then we'll go squirrel hunting or we'll go do something like that so um but i currently don't own a compound okay so technically you're a trad guy so so (laughs) (laughs) if you don't own a compound you're a trad guy so um when you know we can sit here and talk about the progression uh, of, you know, the hunter. Was there a reason you got into trad? And how old were you roughly when you when you picked up a trad bow for the first time? So, like every kid, I guess I started with uh, a recurve. I actually have the first bow that my dad ever made for me. It was a piece of a dogwood limb, and somehow I've kept it all the years. Um, I would not dare try to draw it now. It's got like a nylon string on it and all that stuff, but I still have that. And I would say. Throughout most of my bow hunting career, I have owned at least one stick bow that I would shoot, okay. and occasionally I would uh, try to hunt with it. And uh, man, I've missed some deer with those things. Like you could stand on the back of a deer and raise your hand as high as you could, and I've shot over your hand. That's how bad I've missed some of them throughout <laughs> the years. So it's definitely been a, a steep learning curve for me. Right. But it's probably been the in the last ten or twelve years ago is really when I I just felt that urge to do that. And I'm not a I don't look down my nose at somebody that hunts with a compound or a crossbow or a rifle, and I don't care if you shoot a recurve or a, or a longbow, and if you shoot carbon arrows instead of wood. It, it, as long as you're out there and legally and ethically hunting, I don't care what you're hunting with. It doesn't matter to me. That's just what I choose to do. And most of my buddies are probably split between gun hunters and compound hunters. So, you know, I run with an eclectic crowd to be a stick bow shooter, I guess. But it's just something about, and I kind of, I guess I talked about it a little bit earlier, not to repeat myself, but watching the arrow. I just yeah. love to watch that arrow, and you'll probably tell me, well, that's bad form. You should be looking at where you want the arrow to go. But <laughs> seeing that arrow just, you know, rise up and drop down into a target, and the, the simplicity of the whole thing appeals to me because I'm a little bit of a minimalist. So, like, I grab my longbow, and carrying it to the stand is just, it's just pleasurable. And I'll shoot at pine cones or stumps along the way, and, you know, I never would have done that with a compound. And it's just the whole experience to me is 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 just better for me personally is how I would describe it. Right, right. Just just what it's what you like, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, you know, I hear guys talk about it, well, you must like it because it's harder. You must like it because it's different and all these things. And I don't I don't rationalize it that much. I mean, you know, as an eastern, primarily an eastern bow hunter, we're not really shooting deer that far anyway. So, you know, the times that I've not had an opportunity to shoot a deer because it was 35 yards away, it's not that big of a deal to me. Right, right. So I, I talked to a guy once, and it, kind of to piggyback off your comment, who said, uh, I like using traditional archery because or tra- traditional bows because I like to see the arch in archery, almost exactly what you, what you said. You know, mm-hmm. not, And obviously with some of the compound bows out there today, there's not a lot of arch in some of these uh, – and some of these uh, flight paths yeah. of the arrow, so yeah. I can uh, I can completely get it. To me, it's like you know you've got a bass fisherman and you've got a fly fisherman, right. and to me, you know they're both fishing. It's just the tools you're using to do it. And traditional bows are kind of the fly fishing of the bow hunting world. To me, it's just there's more art in the process. The result can be the same, but there's more art in the process, and it does, you know, to be proficient with it. And there's you know, you can argue shooting styles all day long with stick bows, just like you can compounds. But to be proficient with a stick bow, I certainly have to practice more than I would with the compound. So I would get not bored of shooting with my compound, but I would get frustrated with it because I, it just wasn't fun. Whereas I go out with my stick bow and shoot, and it's just fun. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the summer or the middle of winter. It's just fun to me, and it always has right. been. And that's a big part of it, too. Absolutely. So you mentioned somewhere around, you know, the 10th, 11th grade, you started getting serious and uh, serious to the point where it started affecting grades and jobs and relationships and whatnot. But, but when, when a hunter starts out, they always kind of go for, you know, the, the, there's the first year that walks by is going to get an arrow or, or, and then they kind of stair step their way up to something, whether that is, you know, more deer in a single year, a different caliber of deer in a single year. What, what did that path look like for you? Pretty similar to that. It was the, uh, any deer mentality. I somehow, one of the biggest deer I've ever killed in South Carolina is still the very first deer I ever killed. Um, and I remember going home, I walked home because I was hunting on a neighbor's property and my dad was gone working and my mom didn't believe I'd shot one. So we had to wait on him to come back before he'd believe me to actually go get the deer. But it, it, it went the same progression you're talking about. It's any deer, then a lot of deer. And then, you know, you, you eventually start looking for a better deer, but you kind of relapse every so often. And to be honest with you, I've come kind of full circle on it. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have some properties here that I hunt, um, and then there's some properties I lease and then there's some public ground I hunt. And depending on which one of those I set foot on is dictates to me, you know, what am I looking for today or how many deer I have in my freezer at that point is what I'm willing to shoot today. So I'm not a, I don't want to give you the impression that I am a trophy. I'm not evolved enough to the point, I guess, to where I'm only targeting four and a half years and older deer and stuff like that. I still may very well shoot a two year old deer on the right piece of property. It's just, kind of like whatever you feel like that day or do you have season goals i don't really have season goals i'm kind of enamored right now with elk that's that's kind of been my my thing to be enamored with i guess lately and it's really hard to shoot an elk in south carolina so it's kind (laughs) of like a 
you know, I got a plan and, and I can't scout and I'm doing all these things. And you have to, you know, it takes years and years to learn a place to elk hunt when you're only going out there for seven, eight days at a time. But that, that animal just greatly appeals to me. It's the perfect combination of turkey and whitetail to me. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it, it just really, now if I'm hunting a buddy's place and, and, you know, they've got age restrictions and, and this, that, and the other, obviously I, I follow all of that. And, I, you know, depending on where I'm hunting is a big part of it. And, you know, we... We eat a lot of deer meat around here, so I do need X amount of deer in my freezer every year. Um, those things all factor in. Right, right. Let's let's uh, let's change the topic and talk about elk a little bit because I've been out elk hunting one time uh, due to the birth of my third uh, child this year. I was I wasn't able to go out uh, to a scheduled uh, elk hunt in Colorado, but. I always like to have this conversation with people about the first time or maybe a trigger that was like hey i want to go try a western uh species what what was that trigger for you like when it came to elk hunting it was uh my 10th year of high school and completely out of character my parents let me miss the first two or three days of school because we went on a packed in trip in montana okay and that was the first time I'd ever flown, and it was the first time I'd ever been uh, west of the Mississippi. And the the country just enamored me. I just fell in love with it and the animals, and then I start reading about it and, and, you know, reading Jack O'Connor, talking about elk hunting, and then, you know, just all that into archery from that point forward and, and talking about early elk season where they're just ripping it and bugling. It's just always been in my mind, and I never got the chance to go until... I was at Mossy Oak and, you know, it was a public land over the counter unit in Colorado, which is what I still end up hunting most of the time. Um, and just to get out there in that country with a bow in your hand. And to me, it's just awesome. Whether it's a compound or a stick bow, whatever, it's fine. It's just awesome country for a guy from South Carolina, you know, and you devote a week to it and you do everything you can right. And if you're lucky enough to get one, then the real work begins. It's just a, it's an all-encompassing experience to me that when you come back from it, you just feel like, you know, you met the mountain and you climbed it kind of thing, I guess. Right, right. So it sounds to me like a lot of a lot of passion, maybe, is the word I'm looking for, maybe not, came from reading uh, and and just continually reading about the outdoors. Is Is that an accurate statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so, 100%. Okay. So, so then you ended up, you know, getting out there to Montana, you you were enamored with it. You loved it. Then how many years between there when you were working for Mossy Oak before you actually got to go out and hunt them? That's a pretty good while. I'd have to crunch math. I can't do in my head to figure all that out, but um, that's all right. That's all right. So yeah, it's pretty good while for sure. Cause that was 10th grade and Mossy Oak was like my second job in the industry after college. So that's okay. Four jobs. That's been a while. Gotcha. So remember I'm old (laughs) as you've managed to point out. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So (laughs) the, so with the, uh, with, with, uh, that excitement, kind of going towards that first that first elk hunt what was what was i guess your expectation going into that first elk hunt i mean i have a good feeling that you were really excited about it but you know 
at, when we get excited about whether it's a, a local hunt or a big out-of-state hunt, our mind kind of wanders a little bit. Yeah. What were, what were you thinking at that time? I thought it would it would somehow look different than it did. It was beautiful country, but it didn't look like I thought it would in my mind. I thought it would be more pristine. But, you know, it's hunted ground, it's trails, and it was a, uh, a drop camp deal with an outfitter. He packed in the tent and, and all that kind of stuff, and we just brought our food and our gear and hunted on our own kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember I never understood the term whiteout um, until and we were in the flat tops in Colorado. And, and that year we just hit it right where there was this crazy snowstorm up there. And like literally I'm standing there and I can't see my hand hardly in front of my face. It's snowing so hard. And it's early to be doing that. And I just remember that was kind of a, huh, if I can find my way back to camp up from here, you know, <laughs> if this thing keeps up all night, I've got a good sense of direction, but I don't know if I got that good of a sense. And it, you know, that thing was a quick one and it passed after a while and it was all good, but the hunting was tough. Um, I don't know that I heard more than one bugle that whole trip. A buddy of mine killed an elk on that trip, but I don't think I ever heard any more thing. And then had, uh, another trip or two in there before I finally, you know, had one of those elk hunts that you really dream about where you hit the timing right and the weather's right and the elk are bugling. So after that first elk hunt, was was that another time where you're like, hey, man, I got to do this as much as I can? Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it probably took me another two years to do another one and then, you know, maybe three years for the next one. And now I try to do one every year, but life has a, like you just illustrated, life has a way of changing that sometimes. Right, so. absolutely. So what is it about elk that you're that you're so enamored with? I think it's just uh, it's just a combination of things. It's like you take a turkey and you mix it with a, a big whitetail. And, you know, the thing we like about whitetails, and I've yet to meet anybody that, you know, if you put a six-point in front of them or a 12-point that doesn't want to shoot the 12-point, and I'm that same guy. I may shoot the six-point, that's all I see. But, you know, elk are just big animals, and they just have these amazing set of antlers on their head. But yet they they do this bugle that's really – to me, it doesn't sound like the sound an animal that size should make, but right. they do it. They're responsive to calling, you know, and, and I feel like an elk is responsive to calling for a longer period of time than a whitetail is. Whitetail can be, you know, they're whippy, you know, decoying, calling, rattling, all those things can work. But, you know, you've got to really kind of be in tune with the deer in the area you're hunting to know when they work the best. It's kind of like antelope to a certain extent there's that window of time when they respond the best and whitetails are like that i feel like elk are you know they're more of a herd animal they're different in that aspect so they're more i'd say social and i think you can you can call and interact with them more and you know it was a this hunt i went on earlier this year was tough um the weather was hot and it'd been dry and you know the elk weren't that vocal but we still managed to call one up and we still uh, you know, we called in several, we managed to call one up and my buddy got a shot at. So it, it's just a, it's just an interactive game on a big animal. So it yeah. takes the, the, you know, the gobble of the Turkey and the back and forth you do with him trying to convince him to come in and just puts it on steroids too. Now it's much easier to carry a Turkey out than it is an elk, but. <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs> with, you know, you you started hunting whitetail, right? You took that next step and said, "Hey, I want to try this elk thing." Is there any other animals or species on your radar that you would like to go after and chase uh, 
in the, I guess in the net, you know, five, 10 years before I hit retirement. That's right. Cause I'm that close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of a weird one, but I would like to hunt a, uh, a bison, a buffalo, American buffalo, oh. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I just think that's a, such a cool American animal that, uh, and you know, unless you're going to do it in a, a, uh, high fence game farm something like that there's only really a few places that you can go and actively hunt one uh sometimes the draw is is terrible so i may end up trying to find a cow hunt for those things one day but i've been very fortunate to hunt a lot of different things in a lot of different places and uh one thing that always amazes me kind of me getting off subject is people for the first time start looking out west and you know that's a big step for a lot of guys. It's different terrain, different animals, you know, all that kind of stuff. I just don't understand why more people don't go antelope hunting. Because to me, that's such an awesome gateway species to the West. And if you time it, you know, during that antelope rut, then the decoying thing is awesome. Um, but also if you go out in August before a lot of stuff is open, it's miserably hot, but doing the water hole hunting is, uh, you know, you got a really good chance of killing a very unique animal. I mean, that's just something that, to me, you know, elk or elk and whitetails or whitetails, but you look at an antelope and that's just, uh, they just make such a beautiful mount and they're just so unique. If it's a European skull mount, they're just so unique from that aspect too. It's just a really cool animal. Have Have you uh, been successful on uh, some antelope hunts? I have. Yeah, I have. And they're, you know, that's probably why I'm talking about them so much. They're just such a different, different animal. They're so cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a, a species on my radar that I'd love to get after. I missed one. I went to Nebraska oh, a handful of years ago and uh, ended up missing one, uh, and I was pretty bummed about it. But it, I I think about that area and head and heading back out west every day, uh, and just you know hopefully in the future next year I got another elk hunt. Hopefully starting to plan that as well. So uh, hopefully the I don't know what it is about the West, but it, it, it's like it calls to you. It does, yeah. And, I, and I've got buddies that are the same way, and I've got other buddies that I, I think I could probably give them an elk hunt, not that I would, and they still wouldn't want to go on it. But yeah, just it just catches in some people. So how long have you been bow hunting? How many years? Oh, man. Well, I started when I was like 12 or 14 years old, somewhere around there. I'm 30. I'll be 37 in a week. Uh, yeah. And, but – I didn't really seriously get into it until 2006. So I was 26 at the time. All this other, all these other things happened where I, I didn't hunting wasn't my top priority. And then right. when I was 26, then there was a, 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 a switch that was flipped and I became, I, I just went head first into it. Yeah. So what's the, uh, you just mentioned that antelope miss and I'll gladly tell you mine too, but what's your, what's, what's the miss that, that just punches you in the gut when you think about it throughout your bow hunting career? Ooh, man, flipping the script on the host. I like it. Uh, let's see. Well, you here. said it was a BS session. That is, yeah, this is right. That's right. So it's not, I, it's not necessarily a, a miss that got me worked up. It's a hit, but never recovered that, mm. um, 2000 it was 2010 on my 30th birthday November 5th I had an encounter with a buck that I had five years of history with um and four four or five years of history with he came broadside on 
at 22 yards. I lost my I lost my mind because it, this buck was 210 inches, and roughly, and uh, and I drew back. I let it go, and I shot him, and I hit him high. And it was mm-hmm. because it was because of buck fever, straight up, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up uh, not recovering him. And then the next year, the neighbor ended up shooting him and uh, made the cover a North American whitetail. So, oh wow. Wow. That's the one so I, you... I, I think about, I, th- I thought about a lot. I don't think about it these days as much anymore, but that buck right there gave, like, I learned a lot from hunting that particular deer. So did you think the deer had died and you had not recovered it? Or did you, was there, like, pick him up later in the season or something, let you know he made it through? Or was it just kind of like you found out when your neighbor killed him the next year that he made it? Well, I ended up after I hit him. Uh, I don't know what happened. We looked for him for like two or three days. And then after the season was over, I took like a ton of corn, literally 2000 pounds of corn. And I spread it, uh, I spread it out throughout this farm and put some trail cameras over it. And he ended up showing up on trail camera, uh, after the, uh, um, season was over, but he looked very thin, very skinny. And it, almost to the point where I don't think he was going to make it. And then that next year, 2011, uh, I got a trail camera picture of him and, uh, I knew he was back and, uh, it was late October that year. He was harvested by the na- the neighbor. It's amazing what, uh, what those animals can handle oh. and recover from. Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. the worst feeling in the world to shoot one and lose it and never, get any close i think the lack of closure on it is what makes it if you knew you missed that's one thing if you knew you hit it and you know you got trail camera pictures of it at least you knew he made it but if you just never get closure on it that's what's the the worst part for me yeah absolutely now speaking of speaking of tough i've heard like some of these elk they can take a arrow to the lung and you know typically if you shoot a whitetail and one lung a whitetail for the most part he'll probably die. But I heard that if you hit an elk with, you know, one lung an elk, if they can get to water, they can survive. I don't know about the water thing. I haven't heard that, but they are definitely a, they're an exceptionally tough animal. But if you get both lungs, yeah, my experience has been, they die faster than a whitetail. It seems like Uh, my buddies this year, he double lunged it and it didn't go 50 yards maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's just that's amazing. They're, they're that big, you know? Yeah. That's what I heard about antelope too, in a way where even if it's a bad shot, they kind of give up. Mm. They don't, they don't like to like, if they're wounded, they'll just give up and die. That's I, I heard. I've never had, I've never witnessed it. Just, you know, hearsay from other people. Well, I kind of, I, I agree with that because uh, I kind of had that same scenario um, years ago. I was on an antelope hunt and it was kind of late in the season. So they weren't really decoying late in the rutting season. They weren't really decoying where they come bum rushing like you really want them to. But we found this pretty nice buck and crept up this little drainage and, and my buddy with me was going to pop the decoy up and that would buy me enough time to anchor and shoot. Otherwise, he's going to run as soon as we come up. So we had, you know, did the old crawl up through the sagebrush and zap him with a rangefinder. And he, he was a pretty good ways out there, but I had a, a spot picked. And I just distinctly remember coming to full draw, hitting my anchors with a compound. 
had my pen and I picked that exact spot and I watched that arrow just bury in it. Well, I just got so focused on that spot that when we, I didn't pay attention because when we popped the decoy up, he's quartering away. But as soon as we popped the decoy up, he turns to look and turns his whole body and I just right through the guts. Yeah. But he didn't run 50 yards and bedded down and I executed a very clumsy stalk to get up on him and shoot him again and, you know, finish it off as quick as I could. But there was no really running for cover or trying to find somewhere to hide or it's just like you said, it's just like he kind of laid down and was waiting on me to crawl up and finish him or something. I don't know. Man, that's crazy. Okay. So I told my, my miss story. What about your miss story? (laughs) So mine was an elk. Okay. Um, and I got a lot of missed stories. I'd say the elk is the one that really haunts me the most, but we had just done this deal with Montana decoy and that was what I was going to do. And I was out in Wyoming. Um, I had saved up some points and drew this tag and the big horns, which are beautiful part of the world. And it was the very first afternoon. And, you know, we'd done and elk hunting to me, part of it is the preparation. You know, you're probably going through that. You just said for your other one, you know, getting the maps and getting the Intel and, and Google earth and it and all this, we'd done all that, but we had yet to put boots on the ground. So we get there in that country up there, there's a lot of roads you can drive through. It's not like you got a backpack in, but it's such a limited draw. So there's still elk around. And, you know, I just picked an area and took off and my buddy drove on down the road a good ways to go to somewhere else. And I went in and didn't really hear anything. and was coming out. And was not far from where he dropped me off on the dirt road. And there's this big sage flat and I hear this bull bugle and, you know, I get set up with a decoy and I just got involved in this company and I'm calling at this bull and he's coming and he kind of comes over the hill and I got the decoy set up and I drop downwind of the decoy thinking like a whitetail guy, he's going to at least hook a little downwind of the, what he thinks is the cow, because that's what he should do in my mind. So I back off again into the sage a little farther and I got the old stick bow, and he comes straight to the decoy. Well, in my mind, I haven't shot, you know, enough elk. I probably never will in my life to really get to where the size doesn't factor in a little bit. So he looks closer than he is. And he's not a world record elk. He's just a nice five-by-six that would have been a phenomenal uh, point in my career because, you know, I got that Montana decoy. That's the company I'm working for, and, you know, I'm out here in the middle of Wyoming. It's the very first afternoon, and I zip an arrow two inches under his chest. He hops off. I cow call at him, and he he sees me then because that sage is pretty low, and I'm, like, trying to hide behind it with a six-foot bow. It doesn't really work that well. And he sees me, and, you you know, it's getting darker at this point. He looks at the decoy, looks at me, looks at the decoy, looks at me, and walks towards me because that's where the cow call came from. Until that point, I've been calling behind the decoy, and then I moved when I thought he got close. And he just sat there and stared at me. And I couldn't take a frontal shot. He was actually closer to me then than he was when I shot at him. But it was just a just a heartbreaker to see that arrow. You know, they look so good at first because it's got such a high arch. And you think it's going to drop right into it. And then it just goes right under him. I can still see it. Yeah, yeah. Found my arrow. Obviously, I didn't touch him. I could tell that when the way he acted. But found my arrow and, you know, just was felt like my knees were knocking as I walked out. <laughs> <laughs> so after that miss, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, when, when was that? How long ago was that? Mm, that would have been 2012, 2013, something like that. Okay. Man. All right. So, so then since then, have you redeemed yourself? Yeah, I killed one, uh, 
killed an elk and it was it was the exact way that scenario should have gone it was uh i was in colorado again uh lower colorado kind of uh the southern part of the state and um it was the last morning of our hunt and i was sitting on a rock thinking do i want to walk back to camp and hang out with the guys or do i want to stay out all day it's getting kind of hot things have usually been dying down and i'm sitting there watching this aspen tree move back and forth i'm on a kind of a top of a ridge and uh, I glassed the aspen tree, and I realized that it's an elk rubbing the tree is why it's moving. So, and I had a at that time we were creating that RMEF cow elk decoy. We partnered with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation on it, and uh, I was the first time it had been hunted with. I had a prototype of it, so I hung that thing up and got set in front of it. And uh, cow called a few times, and here an elk comes. And it, this area I'm hunting had been burned over probably five six years before, so you got all these dead pine trees but it's grown up with aspens and uh locust bushes in there so it's really thick in places and it's above your head and i could hear it coming and it pops out and it's this spike which you can't legally shoot a spike there so he kind of comes around beside me because he sees me but then he sees the decoy and so he walks towards the decoy and he ends up beside me and i'm thinking i know that's not the elk that was rubbing that tree i distinctly saw antlers and then i hear another elk coming and he comes up kind of on the other side of me and it's so thick where I am compared to where he is, I literally had to like almost stand up because I was squatting down just to get the arrow over some bushes right there because he was beelining for the decoy just on the other side of me. I had the decoy behind me. And uh, when I hit him, he turned around and ran right back down the spine of the ridge and I saw him fall over. He probably went 80 yards. Nice. So now, was, that, was that your first elk you've ever shot? That was my first elk with a stick bow. I've killed okay. a couple with a compound and a rifle, um, but that was my first one with a stick bow. Was that, uh, you know, because you like the trad life uh, so much, was that like a a puff your chest moment? Like, oh, I did it, and I did it my way type of thing. Oh, absolutely, 100%. It was also like a, you know how that feeling is if you just dodged a bullet because I could easily see me having choked and come apart and missed him and and all that stuff. And it it was really a a big turning point for my confidence and and everything else off of that hunt. So. Um, just really, really cool, cool deal all the way around. And, uh, the guy I was hunting with since I'm old, I'm going to bring in an older guy was actually (laughs) Jim Crumley, the guy that started tree bark, the original hunting camouflage back in 1980. So, and he was like 67 years old at the time. So it was pretty cool to share camp with him and, uh, just have that kind of neat experience up there. Cause he's just such a gracious gentleman and insisted on helping break the bull down and that kind of stuff just a cool cool deal you know right for sure so aside from what we've we've got time for about one more story here what <laughs> what uh do you have any other stories or 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 memories throughout you know from the first animal you've ever harvested to this past year do you have any memories that just stand out in your head You know, the first deer I ever killed with a bow is, is a big deal to me, and I killed it on public ground, and I was sitting on the ground. And it was a place that my cousin and I had scouted, and uh, I went in and just sat on the ground at the base of this big oak tree. And there was an old logging road that kind of ran beside me, and uh, this doe came trotting up the hill. Well, I'm sitting there with my bow literally just lying flat on my lap, and when I go to stand it up, I didn't even get a chance to draw. She immediately saw that and took off running, and I thought, dang 
that was kind of dumb. I should be sitting here holding my bow upright at least the whole time. And she was trotting uh, up the hill originally because there was a buck behind her that I didn't see. And so he comes trotting up the hill, and I'm all set on go at that point, and I shot him at like dead gum 10 yards. He went behind a big oak tree. I drew. He stepped out and stopped, and I shot him. It just worked out absolutely perfect. So that just kind of kind of sticks in my head. And of course, I still have his antlers hanging on a wall, and, you know, just really neat for what me. Was that, what was that like when, after you shot that that first that that animal i mean when you walk walked up to that animal and were, were able to touch him for the first time can you remember what what thoughts were going through your head at that time i kind of it kind of felt like this will be the peak of everything in my life it's all downhill from here <laughs> <laughs> and i remember just like I, I was just so proud of myself and all these other emotions and i remember getting it home and uh getting my dad to come out and look at it and i remember my dad just going Boy, you sure you didn't shoot that thing with a rifle? I don't know if I believe you killed him with a bow. And I was like, Dad, come on. My dad's just old school, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, CJ, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on and BS with me for a little bit. And, uh, hey, good luck the rest of the season. You too, man. Stay in touch, Dan. I appreciate it. All right, well, the kids are crying, uh, the dog is barking, so that is a good time <laughs> to lay it down for the night. Huge shout-out to CJ for coming on the podcast and uh, BSing with me for an hour. Huge shout-out to all of the partners of this podcast, Deer Lab, Ripcord, Exodus, Wasp Archery, Gearhead, Ozonix, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Bighorn Outfitters. I think I named them all. Uh, please go support those companies because they support this podcast. And if you like this podcast, um, you know you can uh, take advantage of those discounts from Wasp, Ozonix, Deer Lab, Exodus, and Lone Wolf. Save a little money. Uh, the season is now. Go buy the products. Um, or you know the holiday season's coming up as well, so take advantage of that. Huge shout out to you the partners the real partners of this podcast the guys who actually download and listen to it thank you very much for everything that you guys do your support means a lot to me um and uh i'm gonna do my best to get out some kick-ass content um for, you know from not only the nine finger chronicles but from the land and legacy podcast the DIY Sportsman podcast and the Transition Wild podcast. I know those guys are uh, ambitious and want to put out a lot of great content as well. Other than that, please, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the timber the next two weeks. Use your damn safety harness. It's pretty simple. All right. So I'll say it again. Please be safe and wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week. Thank you.